FatCast Network presents The Beaver Buzz, a look inside Oregon State Athletics with your host, Bob Lundeberg. Welcome, everybody, to the Beaver Buzz podcast, part of the VatCast Podcast Network. This is your host, Bob Lundeberg, back with another show following the Oregon State football team's tough home loss to Stanford. There are, uh, there are a bunch of topics I want to cover today, so I'm going to keep the intro pretty tight and uh, get right to good friend of the program, Brendan Slaughter of BeaversEdge.com. Brendan and I will talk a bit about the Stanford game and what Oregon State's chances are of defeating UCLA this weekend. I imagine we'll also chat about the Devin Williams saga and John Canzano's weekend column about Oregon State's commitment to a winning football program. Should be a really good show, and thanks as always for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. It really does uh, help us out. And now uh, let's go ahead and get right to Brendan Slaughter of BeaversEdge.com. From Guild Coliseum to Research Stadium, it's the Beaver Buzz with Bob Lundeberg. Brendan, well, when we were uh, when we were texting late last week about setting this thing up, I think we both were kind of figuring that uh, that we were going to be talking about a, a breakthrough win for head coach Jonathan Smith and a 1-0 start to Pac-12 conference play for Oregon State. So I guess what the heck kind of went wrong there for the first two and a half quarters Saturday as the Beavers fell behind, you know, what, 21 nothing. Fought all the way back to tie the game, but ultimately lost 31-28 on that last second field goal to, you know, if we're being honest, a pretty pedestrian at best Stanford team. Yeah, you know, it really, uh, it seems like, you know, we've been, we talked about it at practice this week, and it really seems like, you know, the same narrative has kind of plagued Oregon State really for the last, you know, four, five, six seasons, and it's not having the ability to play a full four-quarter game. And, you know, you look back this season, uh, Offense struggles, you know, um, early in the game against Oklahoma State, puts them behind the eight ball. Uh, Oregon State doesn't score any points in the second half against Hawaii. They lose that game. Uh, then this Stanford game, they don't score any points the first half, and they lose another close one. So, you know, it really comes down to, you know, knowing you have to play an entire game, and Oregon State just hasn't gotten over that hump yet. You know, the, the offense at this point is kind of befuddling because, you know, on one hand, you look at it, the Beavers are ranked what, 22nd nationally in total offense, tied for 41st in scoring offense. By, so by a lot of metrics, the Beavers are really, you know, definitely above average, if not a borderline top 25 offense nationally. But then, you know, looking at the Stanford game, like you mentioned, the, the team was just from an offensive perspective, completely out of sync early in the game. And it, you have to say that that's a little bit of a trend because the same thing, like you also said, happened in the Hawaii game where Oregon State was held scoreless in the second half of the Hawaii game, was held scoreless in the first half of the Stanford game. So that's two of eight halves of football this year now for an offense that is kind of, by some metrics in the top 25, hasn't scored a point. And that's, you know, so, so clearly, if you look at those numbers, then the offense has been really good in stretches in those other six halves. But, you know, really top end elite offenses, they typically just don't go entire halves without scoring. So that's like it's a really weird and interesting trend. And it's it's definitely something the Beavers are going to have to get corrected because you just can't go such long periods of time without putting up points in the league like the Pac-12. Yeah, I mean, you look at the offense, and it really is, you use the best word, befuddling, because it's really hard to put your finger on, you know, and I was in Corvallis yesterday and caught up with uh, offensive coordinator Brian Lindgren, and, you know, 
uh, I was just kind of asking him, like, how do you get there? And he kind of just smirked. He's like, you know, that's what we're trying to figure out. And I think to an, a certain extent, I'm sure it's frustrating for the Oregon State coaches because, you know, you look at this offense and you mentioned a lot of the statistics, whether it's Isaiah Hodgins that has played very, very well this season, you know, uh, leaves the Pac-12 in receiving yards and is, I believe, second in uh, receiving touchdowns. And you have uh, a, a nice compliment in the backfield with Artavis Pierce, Jamar Jefferson, uh, and an offensive line that's getting better and better each week. It, it really is just kind of like puzzling, but you look back and whether it's turnovers, whether it's negative – or excuse me, not turnovers, whether it's penalties or negative mm-hmm. plays – there's just been a few things like, you know, Oregon State will be driving and all of a sudden there'll be a personal foul penalty. There'll be a, um, a holding penalty. There'll be something that puts them behind the eight ball, a negative play, and it just kind of like zaps them out of the drive. And, you know, you saw they really turn the corner in the second half against Stanford. And, you know, that's the positive is that Jonathan Smith and Lindgren both said in the second half against Stanford, that was the best Oregon State's offense has played since this staff has taken over. So now it's all about taking that second half and building on it. But again, that's the same narrative that we've heard for some time now. Yeah, it, it, it really is. And, and kind of like, like you were saying, even with that scoreless first half, I mean, the Beavers still pretty much dominated Stanford statistically, just pulling up. The I mean, to put up yard. 500 yards is impressive. To I mean, 500, yeah, 501 yards for Oregon State, and then you're looking at Stanford holding those guys, not not a great offense, but still to 353 yards, yep. neither team with a turnover because the Beavers haven't barely turned it over at all all year. And really, if you have to think, in, in a football game, if you outgain your opponent by 150 yards and don't turn it over, I have to imagine if you look at Division One football that teams win those games 90 to 95% of the time or something like that. So I guess to me, it just makes that this loss even more hard to swallow just in terms of uh, from a pure statistical yardage standpoint this was a game the Beavers dominated even with Jamar Jefferson you know it wasn't much of a factor because he's dealing with a little bit of an injury there I mean you're down one of your best players essentially Art Pierce stepped in and played a brilliant game but it's just it's pretty it's a pretty tough pill to swallow honestly to gain a team by out game to outgain a team by 150 yards and still come up short. No, you hit it right on the button. And, you know, that's kind of what's my thoughts as I was leaving the press box last Saturday. And it's, you know, it was really an opportunity had passed the Beavers by. And I've been saying that for a couple of weeks because um, I was catching up with, um, you know, a couple of the KEZI guys at practice this week. And we were all talking, you know, it's not unrealistic to think Oregon State should be three and one right now, Bob. Not at all. And have the potential and just how much different things would look if, you know, Oregon State had put you know they you know should have put together a full game against Hawaii and then you know no disrespect to Stanford I don't think they're a very good football team this year and I think they're going to struggle to win games and I think that's where Oregon State kind of had an opportunity that just passed them by and that'll be one that stings for a while not that there isn't another opportunity you know this week against another winnable opponent in my opinion but you know that's one that they're going to you know look back and be like we let one slip and so far this season now there's two that they've let slip so you know, that's not exactly the best trend. You know, one other area of the Stanford game, too, that I, we just have to talk about is the special teams. And that's, you know, an area just like a lot of different, you know, parts of the football from a football perspective, things have gone wrong on field the last few years. Special teams has certainly been 
an issue that we've kind of a recurring issue that we've seen. And I think through the first four games, no, those problems really haven't gone away to, to be perfectly fair. I haven't really liked Oregon state's kickoff return strategy, really dating back all the way to the Gary Anderson ages or really under Jonathan Smith, but that's kind of a topic for a different time. And then just, you know, looking at embattled kicker, Jordan Shuker, he's now what two, two for five on field goals this season. He missed a couple more against Stanford. And then also we have to mention, you know, when Oregon State did tie that game up late on that, you know, on that really quick 10 play drive, the kick the kickoff coverage unit just kind of fell apart and Stanford returned the ball all the way to midfield. And that just in, in situations like that, that just cannot happen at all. You know, I I, I never like to uh, to go this direction when talking about coaches, but does Jonathan Smith need to start thinking about having someone other than Jake Cook as handle the special teams? Because special teams have been just, you know, they, to be fair, they've been pretty poor in the Smith era so far. Yeah. You know, I think that's bold. Um, I think it's a little premature just given okay. um, the strength that Jake Cook has as an in-state recruiter. Um, mm-hmm. I look at it more on that side of it, given that, you know, Jake Cook is that guy. He is the guy that's going all over the state and, um, not to mention one of Jonathan Smith's, you know, teammates from the 2000 squad. Um, mm-hmm. So I, it's possible that they could maybe change roles in the near future. I could see that, but I think Cook is, you know, being on the staff is pretty locked in. And you know, I don't really attribute, um, like, you know, it's like you look at Jonathan Smith. You know, he one of the first things he talked about on it in his Monday press conference was that kickoff return, and he talked about it, and he was had a perfect answer for it. He said he had to watch the tape one time, and it was. In the heat of the moment, you know, you got all these guys that are, you know, excited after tying the game up and, you know, trying to get the crowd into it. And simply put, two guys in the kickoff return team, they blow their gap. They don't mm-hmm. play, you know, uh, they, they miss their gaps. He said, we've been solid on kick returns all year. And here's two guys, you know, obviously wouldn't name names that um, just simply were caught up in the heat of the moment and didn't execute, were overthinking things and just missed their gaps. And that's how Stanford gets to the 50 then he went a step further and said the defense first play you know they allow an 18 yard gain to get him into field goal range on coverage that was a pure miscommunication so you look after Oregon State tied that game they lost their discipline they lost their fundamentals and um, I don't think that's solely on special teams I think that was just kind of being in the heat of the moment watching things you know rise up not being in that you know situation of knowing how to win and uh, when it comes down to it, you know, um, I think Jordan Shukare, Smith kind of talked about it a little bit. Um, first kick, you know, he kind of said, you know, it was just a little bit short. He thought he kicked it well. And the second one, it was 100% on the fact that Noah Togiai just missed a block and on the right side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a free runner got right into the lane. So, you know, you look at that and obviously Jordan's had his issues, but I think it's a I think it's a team effort when it just comes down to like execution and fundamentals. And again, Bob, you've been around this team, you know, nearly as long as I, and how long have we been hearing execution and fundamentals for this Oregon (laughs) state team? Yeah, no, it does sound like a broken record. And I have to agree with you uh, in terms of both of Shukar's missed kicks against Stanford, because uh, the the first one he had, I thought that one was going to, I thought that was good. And considering the weather conditions, you can't hold that against him. And, and much like the Hawaii game too, the long field goal that he missed. I mean, you, it, kicks like that, 50 plus yard kicks from college kickers, you can't expect to make those too often. So let, a, Shuk- let alone a guy, yeah, let alone a guy that's, you know, probably still working on his confidence every day in mm-hmm. Jordan, you know? And, um, you know, both 50 plus kicks that he's attempted in those recent weeks 
Hawaii, the wind was ridiculous that game. And then Stanford, you've got the rain coming down and the wind. So not easy, but then again, you know, it's also not an excuse on the same token. At halftime of the Stanford game, and actually some even after the game too, which is a little surprising to me, I saw a lot of calls from some fans that that Coach Smith should bench Jake Luton in, in favor of Tri- Tristan Jebby. I guess where, where do you kind of stand on all that? I mean, that's something that's dated back for a while too, but where do you stand on some of these calls from the fan base now that the team is one in three to, to put Jebby in there as the starter and get him some reps? Yeah, I was actually thinking about this the other day because it was a, a quite a conversation point at Beaver's Edge, you know, for us after this weekend. And while while I certainly respect uh, any of the voices coming from Beaver Nation, I think the calls for Jebby are ludicrous at this point. Um, you look at uh, where Oregon State is, and you look at the first half, and a lot of the issues weren't on Jake Luton. And then Jake Luton comes out in the second half when the Beavers make some adjustments. They clean up their protection. They open up the play action with you know, establishing the run game with Art Pierce and Jake Luton throws, you know, for XX yards and touchdowns and Oregon State looks like an offense that is unstoppable in the second half. So uh, calling for Jebbia, if Oregon State is one and seven, one and eight, yeah, we can have that conversation right now. Jake Luton is a six year senior that earned the job coming out of fall camp and he's done nothing in my opinion that to say that he should lose it. You know, he's earned it. And if the coaching staff felt that Jebbia was the better option, I think they would have named him the guy coming into the season. But Jake's the guy. I don't think Coach Smith is going to go away from him. And that's why, you know, I, I lauded Coach Smith in the post-game press conference when he said the thought never crossed his mind to go to Jebbia, as it shouldn't. You know, you picked a senior quarterback, you're going to stick with him if, you know, halfway through the season or in three, four weeks, you know, circumstances are changing and, you know, you need to shift your focus maybe towards the future. That's a different conversation. But the Pac-12 opener, I, I I did not agree with those calls. First off, I want to say that I completely 100% agree with you. And I do want to acknowledge that, that look, I, I do get some of this stuff because Luton, he, he's in his sixth year. And, and the Beavers, it does not look like, unless things definitely change, are going to be going to a bowl this season. And Jebbia, he's only a sophomore, very promising. And I get the calls from fans, I really do, that want to start preparing for the future, that think this year's not going anywhere anyway, and it's time to start looking ahead. But I just, I'm with you. I just do not think that benching Luton is in any way the correct play here. And I mean, for one thing, Luton, I think he's been pretty good overall, maybe even better than good. I mean, at the looking at the stats he's completed, 61% of his passes for more than a thousand yards, nine TDs, no picks. And like you said, I mean, against Stanford, he really came on so strong late um, in, in that game. I just like, do, do I think that Luton is a perfect quarterback? I mean, absolutely not. But it, I just, I think that the number one priority for coach Smith and staff is to win each one of these games in front of them. And I've just seen nothing that would lead me to believe that benching Luton in favor of Jabia would result in more wins this season. So I, I think the coaching staff is making definitely the correct move here with going with Luton. And I think that Luton has deserved the opportunity, just like you said. And well, and the other thing about that is, and this is purely my, my opinion, something that I've you know felt since Jake's arrived on campus um, I think Jake Luton and Isaiah Hodgins have a chemistry that is unmatched and one that I don't think Tristan Jebbia could replicate without having, you know, a year or so to work on it. You know, Jake Luton and Isaiah Hodgins, you know, we see kind of both sides of it where we saw it even against Hawaii where Luton even has a tendency to over target Isaiah Hodgins a little bit. 
But Absolutely. with that being said, those two guys have a chemistry. And those two guys, you know, are arguably one of the better receiver quarterback duos. Hodgins' numbers back it up through, you know, four games. And, you know, you have to look. Jake Luton's a tall quarterback. Isaiah Hodgins is a tall receiver. He can put it in windows that I don't think Jebby quite can downfield. I think Luton's a better deep ball thrower. Um, you know, Jebby is definitely a bit more mobile, athletic. It can make kind of more plays in space. And, you know, we saw him, you know, run for a touchdown against Cal Poly. So there's a little bit more that he brings to the table. But when it comes to the best chance to win, there's a reason Oregon State named him the starter. And he hasn't done anything. He still hasn't thrown a pick, Bob. I mean, I he isn't, I mean, that's the other thing. The guy hasn't thrown a pick. So it just doesn't lead me to believe that switching him at this point would do anything but maybe divide the locker room. We're, uh, we're, see- we're definitely seeing the last of Isaiah Hodges in the Beaver uniform, right? I mean, he let, what, 10 for yeah. 160? I mean, 10 you for know, 162 against Stanford. Had another yeah. one of those circus TD catches. I mean, I mean just to finish it up a little bit there, there's been a lot of buzz obviously out there that he's all oh, yeah. set to declare for the nfl draft when this season ends and i mean i think with the year he's having it would probably be a smart move for him i mean i don't want to make this comparison at all because it's not fair but i mean just in terms of looks and what they're capable of with a catch radius hodgins almost kind of looks like a mini mike evans out there to me at times i mean to me he's just got nfl written all over him after this season yeah, you know, that's a fair comparison. You know, uh, uh, Mitch Mangi and I from Beaver's Edge were actually talking, and we kind of saw he's kind of got a, a, a route, not quite the same top-level speed, but in terms of his ability to run routes and, mm-hmm. make, and make catches, you know, we compared him to Josh Gordon a little bit. And, a you know, you, you, too. you look at, um, you know, um, Hodgins himself, and, you know, this is purely my, my speculation and my take, but um, we were talking about it yesterday as Oregon State got a commitment from Victor Bolden's brother, uh, Silas Bolden in 2020, a receiver. Um, and we were talking about what the class or what the, you know, receiving core is going to look like next year. And it's my opinion that I just, I, you know, if he stays healthy, Jake Luton keeps throwing on the ball, Oregon State keeps the offense going. I don't think there'll be much for him to uh, prove and accomplish left at college. I think he's proven he's a, a next level receiver. Um, you know, you look at, you know, the kid himself, you and I have talked to him. He's a really, um, well-spoken kid. He's very confident in what he does. And, you know, uh, this last summer, he went and went and got himself married. I talked to him about that at Pac-12 Media Day. He's just a, a really um, grown-up individual. He's got his life on track. And, you know, from what everything I've kind of seen, I would be surprised if he didn't. Uh, kind of in the same way that Brandon Cooks had a really, really good junior year. And you're like, you know, it would be really great if this guy came back, but there's not really much for him to show. And that's kind of where my gut feeling is with Hodgins. He could surprise us all um, and not. But at this point, I think he's probably leaning that way. Wouldn't you say so? I mean, I sure think so. I mean, just looking at the the stats, you know, through four games already this season, Hodgins, 33 catches, 509 yards, six touchdowns. And, you know, one thing that I, I think is probably a little concerning for coaches Smith and Lindgren is that the other receivers to this point, and I'm not going to count running backs or tight ends here, just receivers adding it up are at 34 catches for 382 yards and four touchdowns. And part of that is obviously because Trevon Bradford has missed all the season to date with his, with his foot injury and kind of like what we talked about a little bit earlier, Luton probably at times, uh, locks on to Hodgins too much. So he's uh, partially responsible for some of the lower numbers for the other receivers. But 
the fact of the matter is I, I think a couple of these, these other guys are really going to need to step up down the stretch if Oregon State's going to you know stack up a couple wins. I mean, we've seen Champ Flemings uh, do it the uh, last couple of games, and maybe Champ is going to be one of those guys. But wide receivers, other than Hodgins, I, I don't think they've performed as well as I would have expected this year. And I think that that's probably been – it's been one of the biggest issues with the offense, I think. Yeah, I mean, I would I wouldn't say struggle because I think Champ Flemings has been really good. I, I get his stats are kind of buoyed yeah. by that Cal Poly game, but I think he's kind of you're talking about a guy that's really starting for the first time as a redshirt sophomore this year, and I think he's growing into his own and kind of that you know real X factor when it comes. You to think speed. Champ? You think? Do you think Champ is a bona fide number two receiver in the Pac-12? I mean, no disrespect to the kid Not at all. Yet. He's incredibly Not hard. Yet. Okay. Yeah, not not quite yet, but the catch that he made against Cal Poly showed me that, like, hey, this kid's got some, you know, he's granted it was Cal Poly, but the kid's got some ability, and you know, I, I'm excited to see what he can do in the coming weeks because Oregon State has kind of ever since that Hawaii game, they kind of realized that, you know, Jake Luton maybe was lasered in on Hodgins a little too much, and we kind of saw against Stanford where Hodgins wasn't super targeted early, and then was a little bit late, so. I think they'll kind of work that out in the coming weeks as it gets a little bit more fine-tuned. Um, I don't worry about Oregon State's offense. They have so many weapons, you know, across the board. And now that, you know, Tyjon Lindsay is back and hopefully getting healthy, I expect him to kind of be more of an X factor. And, you know, the threat of Kobe Taylor is also there as well. So, you know, I expect those receivers to come along. Um, but at the same token, you know, it's kind of one of those things where they need to, you know, get the ball in space. They need to get some experience. Colby Taylor had a nice catch against Stanford. So he's a guy that I think could continue to grow as well. So time will tell on that bona fide number two. I don't think there is one that has stood out, but I think there's a couple guys that are certainly capable of taking the reins. Since we're talking wide receivers, do you think this is a good time to dive into the Devin Williams saga for a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll just I'll go ahead and uh, I'll lay out a rough timeline um, in case some of our listeners haven't been following along. But Devin Williams, he was rated the the number one athlete in the country uh, coming out of high school and signed with USC. Uh, he's a he's a big six foot four receiver with with excellent physical gifts. Kind of one of those prototypical big NFL type receivers. And the Trojans, you know, have a really incredible set of wide receivers themselves. So Williams kind of struggled to find regular playing time over his first year plus in the system. And he put his uh, name into the transfer portal uh, just a couple games into the season. Williams then visited Oregon State during the Cal Poly game and, and reportedly signed a non-binding financial aid agreement uh, shortly thereafter. So Oregon State announced Williams signing on September 25th. But uh, basically, right after that, rumors were already beginning to really pick up that he was kind of wavering in, a, in his commitment to Oregon State. And then uh, a few days later, it was ultimately announced that he would actually be transferring to Oregon, not Oregon State. So, uh, Brendan, I guess first off, did I get all of that right? And second, what what are your thoughts on what what on this just crazy kind of turn of events in what what is a very chaotic transfer world? Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it pretty much on the head, Bob. And, and you know, there's I don't really have a whole lot to kind of say about the situation in the sense that what well, we haven't already said and covered because I'm mm -hmm. kind of a, a, adopting the Jonathan Smith mindset where, you know, someone – he was asked about it Friday night uh, by our good friend Kerry Eggers, the Portland Tribune, and mm -hmm. Jonathan didn't really 
have an answer then. And then someone asked him again about it on Monday. And I think he kind of had a peppered response ready, so to speak. And the long and short of it was, you know, I want guys that are going to be here. And, you know, if, if you don't want to be here, then, you know, what can I do? Hold a kid to it. So at the, at a certain point, I'm sure it's frustrating for Oregon state. Um, they kind of got caught in a situation where they don't look very good. You know, Oregon state had put him on his roster. They had taken photos with him in a Oregon state tie. They had tweeted things out. He was officially on the roster. And then to see all that stay up as he announces, he's going to your arch rival. That's a bad look, a really bad look. So, you know, I think Oregon state maybe learned a lesson a little bit and kind of not jumping the gun too soon. And, um, you know, it's kind of one of those things where maybe the Beavers didn't have a good lock. Maybe they didn't know exactly what Williams was thinking, but, um, it is what it is. Definitely an odd situation. One that I in covering recruiting haven't seen too often. And, um, there's definitely some, uh, angry Beaver fans uh, that uh, certainly have voiced their opinions in the last week. It, it feels to me like we're sort of in the kind of like a wild, wild west period with this transfer portal business because they're just don't add in the California to... bill while you're at it, Bob. Yeah, no kid. No, and, <laughs> yeah, there's, that, that's certainly, that's certainly another layer we can dive into at a different time, but I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. I couldn't no, help. It's myself. fine. Just with the you know, with the transfer portal specifically, they just don't uh, because it's so new. They just they don't appear to be too many set rules or really any rules uh, at all. And it sort of feels like there's just a lot of chaos throughout this entire process. And I, I have to imagine we're going to see some more concrete kind of rules moving forward when people do enter the transfer portal and then the visits they take and what documents they sign to actually bind you to a school. Because, you know, this whole ordeal is really kind of confusing. It's not the same as just going out there and signing a player from the prep or JUCO ranks. It's very, very different. It seems to be a lot more cloudy. And I'm not just saying this because this ordeal seems to be a little bit embarrassing for Oregon State. I just I, I find the whole thing very confusing. And then I guess, you know, from a from an Oregon State perspective, this is a really tough thing overall just because he was a, a what appears to be a big time talent at wide receiver that could have probably come in next year and helped right away. And instead of him, you know, coming and joining the Beavers, he ended up going to your rivals down in Eugene. So this is just a really weird, interesting situation. And I'm not sure that this is the last time we're going to see this. And I hope that there are some more kind of concrete rules moving forward, because I just, I think that, I think that we can probably do better than this from a transfer perspective. I just find the whole thing kind of confusing. Well, I think it's just messy and it's sloppy. And then there's a lot of things, like I said, you know, I, I mentioned the bill and I think right now there's a lot of things that are sloppy with the NCAA. And I think the transfer portal is one of them. I think, you know, this whole California bill is one of them. And there's gonna be a lot of big time decisions that are going to severe, not severely, let me rechoose my words that are going to, you know, just gravitally, just massively impact the future of college athletics. And, um, you know, you look at a situation like this where, you know, Oregon State, you know, they thought they had, you know, a guy that um, per, you know, rivals was going to be arguably Oregon State's highest rated recruit to ever sign with the program and ever actually get there. So, you know, you kind of went from penthouse to outhouse real quick um, in just, you know, a couple days span. And that's a situation where Oregon State learned a hard lesson. And, you know, you kind of just got to 
take your loss and move on. And, you know, that's what I appreciate from coach Smith. You know, he finally addressed it and was ready to move on. And obviously it was a situation where the Beavers feel bad and, you know, kind of got caught, you know, looking the other way and weren't ready for the situation. But at the same token, that's, that's college recruiting. That's how it is. It is a dog eat dog world. And, um, you know, you look at a guy like Devin Williams and, um, you know, if maybe, you know, or Oregon came up with a scholarship offer, whatever it was, um, you know, they made it, they made their offer more appealing and, you know, whether or not Williams was binding or not, you know, I can't blame a kid for wanting to pick a situation that's better for better for him. Um, you know, from a pure, um, reporter perspective, you think he would, you know, I would have liked to see him maybe handle it in a more graceful way than he did. But in terms of a kid picking the best place for him, I can't blame him for that. Well, let's switch gears before we end up talking about the stuff for the next two hours, because I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure we could do that if we wanted to. Um, wanted to ask you uh, about John Canzano's column uh, from over the weekend, the State of Oregon State Football. By chance, did you did you read that? Are you familiar? You know what I'm talking about? I did. I thought it was a fantastic piece. Yeah, I, I really did as well. I thought that, um, you know, I thought Canzano, I thought he brought up a lot of points that, you know, quite yeah. frankly, a lot of Beaver fans that I know have kind of been making for a while. And uh, yeah. I guess for, the, for those of you who didn't read the column, and I highly recommend checking out, uh, checking Me it out as well on OregonLive.com if you haven't. But, uh, but Canzano just kind of talked about how Oregon State's uh, football budget is very low uh, compared to its Pac-12 brethren. As for example, the, the Beavers spent a league low of $17.3 million on football-related uh, expenses last fiscal year. And for comparison, Stanford was at $27 million and Oregon $28 million. Now, uh, Athletic Director Scott Barnes, he went on Canzano's radio show earlier this week and said that those numbers were not apples to apples, that they that they don't uh, yeah. record their finances exactly the same way, which I find a little confusing. But e- even so, even if that's all true, it is pretty clear that OSU is going to need to invest uh, more in football or else I just I don't think the wins are going to come. And, you know, if you look at athletic departments like Utah and Washington State, I think that they've proven that you don't need to spend, you know, Alabama or Clemson money to win. But, you know, you can't spend uh, just a fraction of your competitors and compete. And really, based on a lot of these numbers that are out there, they're publicly available. Anyone can Google them and find these athletic department numbers. It appears that Oregon State is just spending dramatically less on football and its competitors. And I really think that's something that needs to be looked into. Yeah, you know, I was, you know, I was just a few uh, spots down from John on Saturday and, you know, um, we actually, I actually saw, read his story, you know, just shortly after he posted and left the press box. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was, uh, there's a couple things in that story that really stood out to me. And the first is, I love that, that um, you know, John's able to, um, you know, bring attention to Gary Anderson. You know, there's a lot of people around Oregon State that, um, you know, kind of want to pretend that era didn't exist and kind of want to just throw it under the rug. But yet it is something that was here and is something that happened. And it's something Oregon State has to face because a lot of the, um, you know, athletic department was, you know, there and handled the exit and everything else. And, um, you know, the it, it really kind of set in with me when I saw that, you know, one of the more maybe bigger reasons why Gary Anderson kind of threw in the keys is that he felt that he was never going to have the support from the university. Um, when it comes to, you know, putting the football program in a six in a spot to succeed financially. And my kind of big takeaway from this, um, is that 
I think it's going to be absolutely critical who Oregon State brings in to replace uh, Ed Ray as president this next coming year. Um, president Ray is expected to step down in June, and I think who Oregon State hires as a president is going to have a huge impact on what um, on the future of the athletic department, the future of who's you know you know um, you know what what resources are maybe going where or a new president that comes in is like, Hey, we need to get this football program going immediately. I think there's a lot of things, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it was well deserved for Kanzano to write that story because um, that needed to be said. And it needed to be said that Oregon state is falling behind when it comes to finances, because while Scott Barnes didn't necessarily confirm it, the data is data. I mean, that's facts. So, you know, I look at that and I say, Oregon state needs more. One thing, I mean, I, I guess one thing I think it is fair to ask at this point is kind of where does this extra money or where, where is it going to come from? Because, you know, the Beavers right. donor base isn't huge. We all know that the football program has been bad to terrible for half a decade wow. now. Attendance has been exceptionally weak and is not trending up. And I, I know some fans, maybe even a lot of fans, would trade success in other sports for a better football program. But I just I am I'm skeptical that it's just that simple. I'm not sure you can just take a little bit of funding from other programs, give it to football, and all of a sudden you're winning eight to nine games again. I don't think it's really that simple. I, I mean, I also I complete, I, oh yeah, go ahead. No, I also don't think it's coincidental that Oregon State recently cut their women's swimming program. Um, I think I think the Oregon State Athletic Department. I think they, you know, you know, we we've seen it, and it's been said by numerous reporters over and over again. The reason that Oregon State football and the athletic department was so sex, so successful when Mike Riley was there was the fact that they were able to, you know, reach that six win mark, keep the same or keep a steady donor base and keep the athletic department in the black. Because if Oregon State's football program is able to win games, then, you know, everything else kind of buoys itself. You mentioned it. The football program has been a, a, a you know, a, a basement loser now for half a decade. And. That hurts. That hurts everyone from the football team all the way down to, you know, people on the men's golf team. Football is the, you know, the bell cow, the breadwinner when it comes to, you know, bringing money in and also needing to put money in, spend money to make money. So, you know, a lot of it's, you know, I don't want to pretend like I have the greatest knowledge on all of it in the world. And it's certainly um, don't know the inner workings of Oregon State's athletic department or anything like that. But when you see the numbers that have been provided by Kanzano and you see the results uh, on the field that have kind of happened since Oregon State has kind of lost the ability to put money, uh, you know, top tier money in their football program. It's not hard to see why those two things could be correlated. Yeah, I mean, I just I completely 100 percent agree that more money needs to be put into football. I mean, I don't yeah. know. I don't know where the money's going to come from. I don't understand. I do not. I'm just like you. I'm not a I do not have. <laughs> you know, a whole bunch of knowledge of Oregon State's finances yeah, and where right. everything goes. But look, I mean, we can look at the we can look at the reported numbers and just see that Oregon State's total athletic department budget is actually pretty competitive with a lot of other, you know, power five programs, not the top, top, top ones, but a lot of the other programs that are consistently winning in football actually have a lower athletic department overall budget than Oregon State. But those those schools put more of their money, more of those resources into football and if you if you also look at numbers that i've seen you know dating back 10 12 years ago oregon state did put more of that 
of that money into football. It's been more of a recent trend over the last decade where so that, that money is kind of... Yeah, it leads me to believe that maybe, you know, like maybe some of that's went towards, you know, a program that's gotten elite. You know, maybe some of that went towards the women's basketball team. You know, you look at baseball, won a national title. Um, you know, it's it's hard to say exactly, but, you know, you look at, you know, that was the biggest stark thing. It's like Oregon State's on par with total spending. Why are they not putting as much as they can into football, knowing that if they sell out that stadium, they get a product out there that can win six or seven games it's going to be a, a trickle-down effect for the rest of the athletic department. If football makes money, everybody makes money. That's just how it works. So with that being said, I, I'm with you, Bob. I mean, I think they have to kind of circle the wagons and figure out how to put as much into that program as they can because I really think that in this situation for where the Beavers are trying to climb out of the basement of the Pac-12, you really do have to spend money to make money. Oh, I agree with you, Brendan. I completely agree. But uh, to uh, to let's to wrap things up, let's spend uh, let's spend a couple minutes talking UCLA. Uh, this is another game that uh, on paper Oregon State certainly could realistically win. Uh, UCLA has played uh, you know definitely better the last couple weeks, but quarterback Dorian Thompson Robinson is hurt, and his status for Saturday's game is uncertain. I know he has yet to practice this week, so I, I think it's highly unlikely that we'll see. Uh, Thompson Robinson. Oh, Brendan, I guess, what do you think? Can the Beavers pull this one out and uh, get back to one and one in conference play and maybe establish a little bit of momentum heading into the back half of their schedule? It's certainly possible. You know, like you said, it looks like Oregon State's going to face their second backup quarterback in a row, uh, in a row uh, after, you know, KJ Costello wasn't able to go for Stanford last week. Um, you know, I love Dorian Thompson Robinson, DTR, as they call him down there in Pasadena. He's an exciting athlete. Um, I know he went down with that leg injury in their last game against Arizona. Um, I know as of, um, I believe today, he still hadn't uh, practiced, as you mentioned. Yeah. So, as of Thursday, um, he had yet to practice. So yeah, I, I would say yeah. pretty, pretty un- or I guess as of Wednesday, yet to practice. Yeah. So very unlikely that we'll, we'll see him, I think. Yeah. So, you know, anything's certainly possible. He could ramp up his activity on, you know, potentially Thursday or Friday and, and give it a go. Or he could True. maybe try to give it a go on game day. And that's what Coach Kelly said in his uh, Monday press conference. But um, Austin Burton, you know, not. Uh, super known commodity. He didn't uh, exactly do anything, you know, life-changing against the Wildcats. Um, but Tibisar uh, said uh, Wednesday at practice that, you know, both those guys, Chip Kelly is an offensive guy, and, you know, he can plug and play a quarterback that can, you know, execute an offense. So, you know, it really I don't think it's going to change what the Beavers can do. The biggest thing for Oregon State is going to be keeping UCLA in that, Lower tier of scoring is we've seen what they can do when they, you know, explode against Washington State Mm. and then uh, figuring out a way to score, you know, 30 plus on the Bruins and have a consistent game. The Beavers can put, you know, that full game together. I could see them winning this game because I think they're in a better and more consistent place than the Bruins. But at the same token, UCLA is at home and they're coming off, um, you know, a loss to Arizona. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens there. I mean, with the way Oregon State's front seven is playing, you actually have to feel not too bad entering this game, I think, from a defensive perspective. Now, the Beavers' secondary, that's still a major work in progress, as we all know. But I think the front seven, I I don't want to say it's a surprise because I think a lot of us figured that that it was going to be better 
But Oregon State's front seven is absolutely no longer a liability. It's, you know, by far the strongest unit of that defense. So I think from at least that perspective, I would assume that Tibisar and the defense feels pretty good going into this game. Definitely. And to speak on the secondary, they're really just a couple guys away from being a good unit in my mind. I mean, you saw against Stanford, Isaiah Dunn made a couple plays that were NFL level, in my opinion, uh, on pass breakups. You know, he was, I believe, one of the only guys that have logged pass breakups in the secondary. And then, um, I, you know, on the back end, Oregon State still hasn't had a game where both of their presumed starting safeties have been healthy. You know, the, if Oregon State could roll out that lineup of Jalen Moore and David Morris, uh, both healthy and both 100%. I think we'd see that secondary be a lot cleaner and a lot more fundamentally sound. But, you know, Morris is still kind of working his way back and uh, more reaggravated hamstring injury prior to the Stanford game. So, as you mentioned, that's a work in progress. But the front seven, um, it's a step in the right direction. And I said after the Stanford game, I hadn't seen Oregon State's defense swarm to tackle uh, an opposing runner like that in, you know, five, six years. It was impressive. Brandon, as always, thanks so much uh, for joining the Beaver Buzz podcast. Always, always, uh, always great catching up with my uh, with my former coworker. Anytime, Bob. Uh, it's always a pleasure to jump on, and uh, for anytime you'll have me, I'll gladly jump on, my friend. <laughs> Fantastic. I will definitely do this. Uh, well, we'll definitely do this one more time uh, before football season's over. Fantastic, Bob. I appreciate it as always. Thank you, boss. That is Brendan Slaughter from BeaversEdge.com. I'm going to take one final break and uh, be back to wrap up the show. From Guild Coliseum to Reeser Stadium, it's the Beaver Buzz with Bob Lundeberg. Final thought for the day from me. Um, you, you definitely don't need me to say it, but this is clearly a very important game. For uh, the Jonathan Smith era here at Oregon State. And look, you know, last year was what it was. We we all knew it would be a rebuilding year, and it was very ugly at times. But the team didn't quit as it finished with the 2-10 and 10 overall record. And, you know, I think we've seen that same fight uh, throughout this entire season. And the team is sitting at 1-3, and three, and the record probably should be 3-1. and one. But it's not, and those are the growing pains you typically do see in a rebuilding football program. Chip Kelly, he's trying to do the same thing down at UCLA. The Bruins went 3-9 and nine last year in his first season at the helm and are sitting at 1-4 and four this season. Expectations were obviously a lot higher for Chip just kind of from the national media because of his stature, and he, he has not lived up to those lofty expectations thus far. I, I have absolutely no idea what is going to happen Saturday night at the Rose Bowl. I don't think any result in the in the game would surprise me, but I do believe that Coach Smith really needs this win coming off the the tough losses to Hawaii and Stanford. Entering the season, you know, most fans wanted to see the team. I think simply just be more competitive, and there is no doubt that has happened. And the Beavers are a much much improved football team, really in basically all phases of the game from a season ago. But the wins haven't come in bunches yet. And Saturday, to me, feels like a good time to try and establish uh, some momentum heading into the second half of the season. As always, uh, thank you guys for listening to the Beaver Buzz podcast, part of the ThatCast podcast network. Enjoy the game this weekend, and I will be back next week to talk about whatever happens at the Rose Bowl.